On the morning of August 8, 1973, an EMT dispatcher receives a call from a male voice on the other end of the phone. He sounds young and his voice is shaky. The voice says, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Later on, first responders would arrive at 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena, Texas, a suburb of Houston. The lawn was not well manicured and there were dead plants everywhere. They arrived to see three teens on the porch, all with the haunted look in their eyes. One of them would simply point to the door and say, In there. Inside, they find a body on the floor shot five or six times, the face matted with blood. What in the hell happened inside that house? Halloween, everybody! Get the fuck in here! Welcome back! Welcome to the first bonus episode of My Second Self and I, and my 19th episode total. I cannot believe it's already been almost 20 of these. I got to work on number 20 after this is over with. Holy shit. The energy today, gonna be a little bit on the looser side. A little bit more loose than usual, if you can't tell by my energy. This one is for me. I've wanted to do this one for a long time, and I just happened to barely get in enough time this month to give you an extra little bit of time with myself and the voice in my head over there. He's going to be kind of quiet today. We'll explain why later. But we're also going to have a lot of fun with this one today. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank everyone who listened yesterday to The Butcher of Hanover. I hope the quality of that one ended up sounding okay. I tried a new placement for my microphone and played with the levels a little bit, and I haven't had time to look at those and adjust them as I record this one, because I just recorded that like an hour ago. So, just a couple of days ago from when you heard it, for me, just a couple hours ago, today is currently Saturday, the 29th. Just a little free peek into my schedule this week. It was pretty crazy. So I, just, I wanted to make sure I had the raw audio recorded ahead of time for both so that when I get into the editing, I don't also have to worry about recording something else because this shit takes a long damn time. It just does. If I didn't take as long as I did to put them together, I wouldn't... God damn it, Mom. If I didn't take as long as I did to put them together, I wouldn't be able to give you something that you want to listen to. So I got that figured out, and since this is just extra mat time, we're going to be extra silly and have some good old-fashioned fucking fun today. Sound good? All right, cool. Hop on to whatever platform you listen on, rate, review the show. I'm always looking for more ways to improve, and seeing people actually listen places helps me think of ways to get better, so if you could, I'd really appreciate that. If you aren't already familiar with the story today, Dean Coral, otherwise known as the Candyman, is one of the worst serial killers out there, for sure in my personal top three. And this episode is going to be disgusting, gruesome, and pretty graphic. You know how I get with certain things, so to counteract all the depressing, torturous violence, I'm going to really try to ramp up the aggressive positivity wherever I can just to lighten things up. Go smash your goals in the face, you gorgeous bitch! Violently stab your inner demons with daggers made from positive energy! Fucking murder those demons! Calm down, new listener. We're all friends here, and I love you. And I hope you're having a good day today. 
Today we're going to stay right here at home in Houston. The part I'm in is still close enough to be considered Houston, don't worry about it. We're going back only about 50 years ago. But first, think about how long 50 years ago is. How, how long ago is that in your head? Seems like it's much farther away than it really is, but we're going to be in the Heights in Houston from around 1970 to 1973. If you live there now, and you've never heard of this case before, surprise, and buckle up. If you have heard this case before, it bears repeating, again, and again, and again, buckle up. Dean Arnold Coral, better known as the Candyman, or Houston Mass Murderer, stalked the neighborhood of the Heights, a suburb in Houston beginning around 1970 and ending in 1973 when Dean was shot and killed by one of his own accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley. Dean, Henley, and a third boy, David Brooks, would work together during those years to commit, at that point, the worst mass murder in U.S. history. In total, a minimum of at least 27 teenage boys were abducted, tortured, raped, and murdered at the hands of one of these three individuals. Dean ran a candy factory located in the Heights, right across from Helms Elementary. Surprise! Children would line up after school to get free pieces of broken candy that Dean would bring over from the factory. A free, fun, sweet treat that many neighborhood children looked forward to after school let out. For a time, Houston had its very own Pied Piper luring children and teenage boys to a gruesome death, except with candy instead of rats and flutes. Dean Coral was once the most prolific serial killer in America. So rise and fucking shine for true crime comedy time. It's time for my second self and I to talk to you about... The Candyman. Oh, and Kyle Bush should definitely consider changing his nickname. Before we get into this, I wanted to give everyone a warning ahead of time... This episode is disgusting. Extremely violent and graphic sexual sadism, mutilation, and very much like last episode, lots and lots of teenage boys. Current listeners understand, but if you're new here, I'll explain a bit about what I do here on the show. This is a comedy show. Believe it or not, true crime and comedy go together like PB&J. Real quick, um, peanut butter and apple jelly is my new favorite thing in the world. Go do that, it's fucking great. And for me, the grosser something is, or the darker or more tragic something is, I have to try that much harder to make jokes and find something to laugh at, because this shit is uncomfortable. It's impossible for me to process what we're going to talk about today without cracking a few jokes along the way. Otherwise, I'd have a complete fucking mental breakdown, and the disembodied voice that chimes in from time to time would be in charge of whatever this is, so... It makes it easier for everybody if we just laugh at the funny parts and move on. Dean Coral is, for me, one of the worst human beings I've ever read about. Maybe it just hits a little bit closer to home for me since I live here and have driven by many of the places that we'll talk about today. If you thought Dahmer was a monstrous piece of shit, apart from the god-awful Netflix special, no, I haven't watched it, no, I'm not fucking going to, you're right, he was a monstrous piece of shit, but I will challenge you after this episode to tell me which of these two were worse. I'm going to give it to Coral. Dahmer's definitely up there top ten somewhere, but Coral's top three at minimum for me. Maybe the worst one I have floating around in here, but I haven't compared them all to each other yet, so for now we'll just say top three somewhere. There are so many parallels between this case and the one from yesterday, The Butcher of Hanover. I did not realize that until I started putting these two together side by side. 
runaway kids, sexual sadism, incompetent police. I could swap out the names with Friedrich Heinrich Fritz Carl Harmon, whatever the fuck his name was, with Dean Arnold Carl, and it would still be the same story, pretty much. It's almost like Dean Carl was the butcher of Hanover reincarnated, almost. Dean Arnold Cornell was born December 24th, 1939, just outside Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was a Christmas Eve baby. How ironic. His parents, Mary and Arnold Cornell, tried their best. I'm certain the state of the world in 1939 didn't do much to help with unstable home life. And the two fought all the time. Mary was sort of wishy-washy. She leaned on her children a little bit too much for emotional support, especially when Arnold was being an extra huge asshole. She would confide in Dean and his older brother, Stan other brother Stanley, not older, I believe Stanley's younger brother, until she felt better she would confide in them because Arnold was a dick. I can't wait till I do one of these where the dad's not a complete asshole and he actually loves his wife and children and doesn't abuse them. Why is he always an asshole in these? I've... I know they're not all like that. Mine's not like that. Why are they always like that in these stories? I, I, I can't wait to find one where dad's cool. He would punish the kids for doing what Mary often called just cute kid stuff, such as Dean one time climbed up onto the counter in the bathroom and turned on the sink and just walked away. Bye. Left his thing turned on and flooded out the entire bathroom. Hey, Dad, come see. It's so cute. Dad, seriously. Dad, Dad, it's so cute. You're not going to believe it. Dad, Dad, it's so cute. You're going to shit your pants. Dad, get in here. Arnold wanted to whoop his ass, and I probably would have too, but he never did, and honestly, I probably wouldn't have either. I don't think I would have cared that much. Whatever. This house sucks anyway. Fuck it. I needed an excuse to rip out everything and remodel it anyway. So, you know what? Yeah, thanks, son. That was cute. His mom said later on, Dean never cared if anyone played with him or not. From the time he was little, he never went any place to see anybody else. That sounds awful. Wow. He'd be like that kid on the playground just... Staring at an ant pile with a magnifying glass. He was an antisocial and serious kid. No one really knows what he did all day. Probably that. Torching ants with the sun. Arnold would come and go, too. They divorced when Dean was about six, and then quite a few times throughout his childhood. They tried a couple times. It didn't really work out. During Arnold's time in the Air Force, when he was stationed in Memphis... Stationed in Memphis! Walking with his feet ten foot off a beal. But does he really feel the way he feels? That was Cher. In 1950, he was discharged, and I guess he really did feel the way he felt because they decided to try the marriage again. But this time, you know what? Let's go to Houston. I've heard it's nice there. Eh. Uh, yeah, I guess parts of it are. Where I live is pretty, I guess. Houston, though, Houston's not for new drivers, though. Hold on. The highways here have two speeds. 100 and zero. Either everybody's driving way too goddamn fast, or nobody's driving because somebody was driving way too fast, whiffed a lane change a mile up, and ruined everybody else's morning commute. And stay the fuck off 99 if you aren't going to drive at least 99. Come on, we've got places to go, you fucking turtle. So they gave it a good shot, but the marriage falls apart again for the last time in 1953. Now Mary is a single mom and has to deal with Dean and Stanley on her own. The boys were often left with sitters while Mary was out trying to hunt for a new job. And one time they were even sent to live on a farm back in Indiana for a little while, but that just ended up making Dean a little more anxious. 
And stress can sometimes be contagious between two people, particularly parents and child. Mary had a lot of stuff to worry about, and it probably didn't help Dean with his own anxiety. Mary kept on pushing through, though, just trying like hell to get that bottom block locked down, and eventually married a traveling clock salesman named Jake West and moved to Vider, Texas when Dean was a teenager. A little bit about Vider. Three very current reviews reviews as of 2020 still label it as um, pretty sundowny. The younger generation seems to be trying to fix it and address a lot of those problems, but still, if you don't look like a relative of mine, probably don't go here still just in case. They've got a lot of fucking work to do over there, but enough about that place. While the family lived here, Dean played trombone in the marching band. He liked that a lot better than the football team. He wanted to be the best, like no one ever was, and playing music made him want to stay in school. Except for he didn't stay in school, and he was actually the very worst, like no one ever was. I've done an unhealthy amount of research into this case this week, and somehow missed this, but he also kept flying squirrels chained around his neck, and sometimes still living inside his boots or dead at school. What the fuck, Dean? And true crime dorks like me will know what that means. Animal abuse is super common among serial killers, usually present at some point in their childhood. Kemper would put cat heads on sticks, Son of Sam shot a couple dogs, Dahmer put dog heads on sticks, Bleach the Bones, BTK, Boston Strangler, Bundy, Cunanan would set crab's eyes on fire? What the fuck? I didn't know that was... You can... How do you set a crab on fire? I didn't know you could do that. Ew. What the hell? And the other two parts of the triad are bedwetting and setting fires. The likelihood that a kid grow up to be an adult with violent tendencies increases as each piece of the triad presents itself. At some point in the mid-50s, a traveling pecan salesman, or do I want to say pecan today? Which group do I want to piss off, pecan or pecan? I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with pecan today. A traveling pecan salesman stops by the house. He suggested to Mary to make pralines, which are awesome if you've never had one. They're entirely too sweet, and it's almost like instant diabetes, but they're fucking great. You know, I wonder how that came up, too. Nice place, ma'am. If you'd ever like to never see me again, how's about I just tell you how to make them? They's real easy. Yeah, all right, cool. I guess I just don't understand what people did back then. That seems like an odd conversation to have at, a, at your doorstep with a stranger. Do you want to learn to make candy? Sure. Mary said, okie dokie artichoke, or something folksy probably. Went to a candy shop nearby, purchased a couple recipes for about 50 bucks, and opened up her own candy company. Then Mary and Jake started in their own garage. Dean eventually took control though. Turns out he was pretty good at making candy. He said, fuck school, fuck dating, and especially fuck dancing. I've got candy to make and also to deliver to all these customers. Making candy seemed to work well for young Dean. He kept mostly to himself, had very few friends, avoided socializing and rejection. One quote in the yearbook would say he was sweet to know, but seemed very preoccupied. Meanwhile, back at the house, the business thrived. So much so, they were op able to open up an actual storefront. Hooray! Houston was in the middle of a large economic boom, and the city was erupting with new businesses and real estate opportunities. The only home they could afford, though, was located in the Heights, a suburb on the northwest side of Houston, just inside the loop. If you go there now, it's fucking awesome. There's Victorian-style houses all up and down Heights Boulevard. And here's one of the best things about Houston right now, particularly in the Heights, is the food scene. 
You can get literally anything you want here. It's fucking great. Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, Indian, Mexican, tapas, Italian, Ethiopian, seafood, Cajun. That's most of the foods. I think there's a couple more. But it's all everywhere and it's all delicious. So you can get whatever you want here. And the But back then, the Heights was pretty much just the hood back then. Probably not too much different than how Cypress Station is now if you live here. The family tried to settle in, but surprise, surprise, Jake's kind of a dick too. He'd tell Dean all the time, Wrong milk, dipshit, go get the right one. Okay, I don't know if he actually said that, but, you know, it, it is fun for me to think that he did. He would berate him for getting the wrong stuff at the store, and it's possible that he wasn't great at milk selection. This is kind of fucked up, and probably a factor for later. They shipped Dean away to go live with his grandparents in Indiana when he was 19 to help ease the pressure of home life. Does that mean they're just tired of his shit at home, or do they just want an excuse to fuck off and not be parents for a little while? I don't know which one that is. He lived there for two years in Indiana, worked at a factory doing God only knows what. This is creepy. He had a telescope in the barn. He said it was looking for stars and planets, but... It was for looking at stars and planets, but I... I don't know. I guess maybe he didn't have close neighbors to spy on in rural Indiana. Maybe, but I don't... It's hard for me to look at him now and see the telescope and not connect it to something creepy. I don't know, I just don't see that not being a totally benign thing of his. He also made short movies, including a comedy. Apparently, in the film, one of his sisters took out some intestines on a fake operating table. Nurse! Get me something to strap the patient down with. We can't have him flopping about on the operating table. Well, all I have is this. And then she holds up her hands and it's just like a giant ball of intestines like a rat king or a snake ball. Should we just do like a slipknot or something? And the doctor says, Slipknot? I've told you we're either double square knot or sheep pen, damn it! I don't know, I feel like it would have been a vaudeville-esque style comedy to it like that. You know, albeit, you know, a little macabre. So Dean moves back to Houston after a while to help mom with the company as it was growing out of control, and she even offered to help pay him. Sweet. Right around now, Dean figures out, you know what, I'm probably gay. You know my friend Wanda? We've been mailing each other letters and tape recordings of our voices and stuff because it's the 60s and we're bored. Sometimes I'd get so bored I'd send her pralines, and sometimes she'd get so bored she'd send me cakes. Damn it, it's so boring here. And then Wanda calls me one day and she says, Hey, Dean, I'm getting married. What the hell are you talking about getting married? To whom? Well, you, you dumbass, you're my fiancé now. No, 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 I'm not marrying you, Wanda. I don't even like vaginas. They're confusing and complicated to figure out. Take your devil-snatching, fallopian, black magic, baby-making spells and get out of here, you viper. So he's super gay, which cool, good for him. Not everyone's able to figure it out by that age, especially back then since it wasn't cool to be openly gay yet. Which is stupid, because gay guys are fucking hilarious. I work with a few of them, and I asked one of them the other day if he knew who a sportscaster was, and he goes, Oh no, honey, I'm way too gay for that. And, <laughs> and then the rest of the shift, anytime I would ask him a question, that was his response. Nope, too gay, sorry. That's fucking hilarious response to anything. I love that guy. And mom didn't want to talk about sex. Dean's mom, Mary. She never bothered talking about the burbs and the bees, because it... He, that could have made it seem like a shameful thing for Dean, too. She also flat out refused to believe he was gay, said it was wrong, which, again, psychologically can be pretty damaging. Fighting back against a core part of yourself can be dangerous. 
Shame can lead to anger, anger to rage, rage to poison, poison to dark side. I, I wrote that as a joke, but it still kind of fits, actually, so we'll just roll with it. Back at home again, Mary and Jake were struggling to keep the marriage together. Things were pretty contentious about the business. Jake once said for her to go home and never come back, you're fired, except starting the company in the first place was her idea, you dickhead, so she instead says, Fuck you, Jake West. I'm going to go create my own candy company and call it the Coral Candy Company, currently considering Dean Coral as Coral Company Candy Company Comptroller. Jake didn't like that, and he says in response to Mary's long-winded alliteration, She's poisoned the divinity with her devil-snatch witchcraft! Or probably something dumb and loud like that. He was an asshole, and he did slander her in the newspaper to try to make her company look bad. Dean also moves out of the house and into an apartment above the store. He never seemed to leave the building anyway. Might as well put a bed up there. And there may have been an incident with one of the young male employees there. Dean possibly, I think probably, propositioned him with some kind of sexual advance, which made him super uncomfortable. And Mom said, he's not gay, and neither am I, and you're fired, and fired the little boy. I don't understand why that had to have happened. But Mary is currently trying to get hexed by some new demon rod wizardry. Palm readers, mediums, and whoever will tell her something. She's got to find a new lover. She's trying everything she can to find a new man in her life. And Dean is a dedicated and skilled candy maker, who is also the sole keeper of formulas and recipes. Many of the employees liked him and respected him, too. He was always polite and considerate. The ladies wanted him, and Mom tried super hard to set them up with him, but they knew he was gay. He acted super different around dudes than he did around ladies, Trust us, we have magic powers built right in. We can tell, probably what they were thinking. I don't know what women think. Employees didn't really care that he was gay either. They just, they were more thrilled about having a boss that seemed kind of easygoing. Except for Dean had um, this weird habit. He always had young boys and teenagers around the factory all the time. Which was weird for a lot of the employees. It said it came off as kind of sweet and paternal, but we know he'd already tried to touch at least one of them by then, so... I don't think it was as fun a work environment as what I read makes it seem like. I don't think so. It's now 1964. Dean in his mid-twenties, running the candy company, and things are doing okay. Not great, but okay. Right across from Helms Elementary on West 21st Street, right around the corner from Moon Rabbit. That's a Vietnamese place down there. Looks really delicious. Haven't been yet. Gotta go. Kids lined up after school to get broken pieces of candy from the factory that Dean would give to them. Mom asked him to stop, but Dean couldn't help himself. He always encouraged young people to hang out there. And I apologize if you like frogs, but Dean made the phone look like a giant green frog that's eyes would light up whenever it rang. You know, to be more appealing to the children that he wanted to have around the candy factory that he probably wanted to touch and fondle and did. Ruby Jenkins said she never saw a man that loved kids like Dean did. They were always around him and hugging him, and he loved it. He also installed a pool table in the back room to attract older teens. Then total Spicoli move, he tricked out his van with carpets and a couch and a TV, put some surfboard racks on the roof too, got to head down to the beach and do some beachy things. Cheers if you get that one. This is kind of funny too. One time, a girl thought she was going on a date on the beach with Dean, and then he shows up with a van full of screaming stone kids. How romantic. Okay, so throughout this, his sexual orientation comes up a lot. And it's very important to point out that he wasn't a sadistic, fucked up, monstrously dangerous pedophile 
because he was gay. He just also happened to be gay and a pedophile. With pedophiles, it's more of an age thing instead of a gender or sexual orientation thing. If he was straight, he'd have likely just gone after young girls instead. So stop it if you were thinking that. Stop it. Gay does not equal kid toucher. My coworkers would lay the fuck out anybody who ever said that to them with good reason. That is so stupid to think if you were thinking that. Moving on. Ruby also suspected that he was super violent. He had a pout room, which I've never heard of. It just, he would go in there to blow off steam, which just makes me think of the Angry Dome on Futurama. Dean also started to show lots of poor impulse control around this time as well. He started just buying cars on a whim and, ah, you know what, I'm bored with this thing now, I'm gonna go sell it. Why the hell did I buy a dart? Just buying cars and selling them two weeks later. What the hell are you doing, man? How cheap were cars back then? Jesus. He's starting to become a little unhinged. He starts pushing that boundary line just a little bit further and further out each day. Not just moral boundaries, but also criminal boundaries. Started to feel good to be bad. And that may, and he may have done quite a lot more than he was ever actually charged with. Ruby said she'd seen him digging at night quite a bit behind the factory. For some reason, Dean had dug up the pout room and filled it in with cement. No more angry dome. And another night, dug up a site that was later turned into a parking lot, so who fucking knows what that was. He always said it was food waste. He always kept bags of cement and had a four-foot-long roll of plastic sheeting, though, too. So those could have been early unknown victims, and I think, yeah, totally. There's no way a small candy company could have enough leftover food waste from fucking pralines and divinity to fill not only an entire pout room, but also more that has to be buried elsewhere and farther away from the building it came from? I don't buy it, Dean. Mama Mary found that demon rod, though. Found it attached to an actual demon named Walt Colburn. They met through some early dating service, which I really hope was a personal ad. I want to read it if it was. And they got married pretty quickly. It was instantly a contentious goddamn nightmare. Walt was angry and jealous all the time for no reason, and... You know what? I'm starting to get suspicious of you saying your last ex-wife was a suicide victim. I don't know about that one. I've never heard of someone being such an asshole that someone else kills themselves. Usually the asshole gets killed in that situation, right? This doesn't happen. Oh my god, you are such an unbelievable asshole! I can't believe you would be so cruel. All I asked was, have you seen my missing shoe? And you said, God damn, you've let yourself go! Why don't you join a gym and work on those cankles? So you know what? You can go make your own dinner. That's why I needed my other shoe. I was going to buy groceries, but no, not anymore. I'm going to go sit in the car in the garage with the door closed and turn it on, and when you find my shoe, why don't you shove it up your ass for when I see you in hell? That doesn't happen. No. <laughs> oh, that was fun for me. I'm sorry. No, we're not sorry. He picked a lot of fights with Dean, too. Walt did. One time during an argument, hopefully not the shoe one that definitely never happened outside my fucked up brain, he outed Dean as a homosexual and Mary lost it and, would listen, and wouldn't listen to him even though it's pretty obvious to literally everybody else. So she goes and visits another psychic about the marriage. That particular psychic told her to distance herself from him. He's harsh in your vibe, dude. Mary says, alright, I'm gonna go to Colorado and divorce your ass. Five marriages to three different men. It took five times to figure out maybe marriage sucks. Maybe this isn't for me. Five times, really? I don't think I... I've never been married yet, but I'll give it maybe two times. Maybe twice. After that, it just might not be for me. 
I haven't made it that far yet, though, but I'm not going to make it to five. I fucking know that. She kept in touch with Dean, but once she moved to Colorado, she would never see him alive again. In 1968, he closes the Coral Candy Company as Coral Candy Company Company Comptroller and President permanently and begins working as a contractor for the Houston Lighting and Power Company. Dean's now 29, living completely alone for the first time, right across from Cooley Elementary. That one burned down in 1961 and was rebuilt a year later, then closed in 81. Pretty close to where the Ashland Apartments are now. Wait a minute, were those there then? I wonder. He decorated it just like the factory. Pool table, dartboard, probably a big-ass red beanbag chair somewhere, bar stools, a hi-fi stereo, a pair of bitchin' Kenwoods. Also had a creepy-ass warning light in his bedroom to signal if there were any intruders. What are you doing in there you don't want anyone to see? <laughs> don't worry, we'll, I'll tell you. I had to read about it, you gotta fucking hear about it. Dean threw so many parties at his apartment and always had like a dozen fucking kids there who were all either stoned or drunk or huffing paint over in the corner or naked under a table, we'll find out, just trying to figure out what color the wall sounds like. Once a neighborhood kid named Rusty Branch came to the party with a group of other kids, he'd brought his sister with him because he was babysitting her, and she said there were four naked kids smoking weed under a table and that one of the kids OD'd on huffing paint. You can do that? I didn't know you could do that. Dean carried him off to the bedroom, but didn't really seem to care if he was okay or not. Dean actually did have a girlfriend, too. Her name was Betty Hawkins. She was a single mom, already had two children of her own. I wrote the wrong two, I'm dumb. They dated on and off, and her kids seemed to enjoy having him around. They hardly ever did anything physical. They tried to have sex one time, but we already know how Dean feels about witchcraft, so he wasn't really into it. December 1969, he is now 30. Still battling with a lot of confusing inner demons. Something about when a person turns 30, this is just me, but I feel like there's a, there's a hidden switch in people's brains. Sometime right around 30 years old, something gets in deep and just grabs a hold of that switch. It's, it's currently in a neutral position. Something flips that switch either up or down, and from then on, that person is on a whole other level of either dedicated personal growth and development, or the complete backslide, just giving it all up for the easiest possible get-me-through-this-damn-day option available, whatever that might be to that person. Some kind of shift in their personality or their energy, and that's exactly what happened to Dean. Not sure what caused it, but his age and physical appearance are beginning to bother him a little bit more. He's also kind of bored with his electric job, sense of humor is gone. No one knows what caused it, but he would also kill his first victim within that first year of being 30. Okay, I know I said it earlier at the beginning, but it still bears repeating. The rest of this episode's going to be gross. Gruesome mutilations and violent sexual assaults, along with torture and so many murdered teenagers. You have been warned. If you can't handle this today, I wouldn't blame you. See you next week when it's slightly less gross. September 25th, 1970. The Candyman would claim his first victim, Jeffrey Conan, an 18-year-old student from UT Austin. He and another student hitchhiked to Houston, because that's how you got places back then. They dropped him off at Westheimer and Voss Road, which is now a vitamin shop across from a Hawaiian barbecue place. I'd love me some of that Mac salad. He had to flag down another ride to his girlfriend's house when he got there. So Dean's out driving around in his 
super obvious rape van. It looks exactly like the van you see in all the movies. It's the white paneled van. And then something in him clicked. All right, I'm doing this. So he offers him a ride. Except for Jeffrey never made it to his girlfriend's house. Dean abducted him and drove to his apartment. Dean stuffed a cloth in his mouth, bound his hands and feet, and raped him. Then he choked him to death, buried him at High Island Beach down near Galveston under a boulder. He was buried with a gag in his mouth, wrapped in plastic and covered in lime. After it was over, there was a strong sense of euphoria washing over Dean. He wanted to do it again. A lot. Many times. And he would, but first, let's refine this. I need an easier way. I know I'm capable, and if I do it the same way, I probably won't get caught by the police. Then he starts developing a little bit closer relationship with David Brooks now. He is 15. They met when David was in sixth grade for the first time. He was one of the free candy kids that would line up after school. His parents were also divorced. Brooks lived with his dad, and of course, dad's a dick. David saw Dean as kind of a father figure. The two maintained a relationship as David became a teenager and got into high school. Dean would also give David money and let him crash at his place when dad was being an extra huge demon rod. This was also Dean's first relationship with someone who didn't mock him. Groomed like a fancy dog from the moment Dean laid eyes on him. How fucking disgusting is that? He first abused Brooks when he was 15 and gifted him a four-foot-long cool-as-shit blacklight for staying quiet about it. That doesn't feel equal. Let me rape you doesn't equal blacklight to me. And it was always Dean doing it to Brooks, though. Never the other way around. He'd also pay David to let him fillet him, which is just a strange... That's a, just a strange backwards business deal. I'll pay you to suck your dick? Usually that's the other way around, right? What? That's a weird one. So 1970, David drops out as a freshman and moves to Beaumont for a little while. Doesn't work out, and he's back in the Heights at Dean's place not too long after that. And he's just always there, always hanging out at Dean's place, all the time. On December 13th, 1970, David walked in on Dean assaulting two boys. Everybody was naked, and the boys were strapped to Dean's torture rack which was a plywood board with restraints on each corner and eye holes drilled into it. This thing is super creepy. Yes, I'll post pictures on the Facebook page. Dean was pretty startled. What the fuck are you doing here? Brooks said, All right, never mind, bye, I'm out, see ya. No, oops, didn't mean to come in. And then later on, Dean told him it was related to some kind of underground gay porn ring, but the boys wouldn't be around anymore. He'd sent them away to California to take more pictures. In like 20 minutes, they made it to California. Really? There you are. Why have you been so quiet? I'm still sorting through all the horrifying new images you shoved in here this week. You can do most of the talking today. All right, fair enough. Stick around, though. They like you out there. Really? Neat. Dean then quickly confessed to David that he'd actually killed them and buried them at a boat stall. Then he bought him an awesome 1969 green Corvette Stingray. It's one I want. These two victims were 14-year-old Danny Yates and Jimmy Glass. They were last seen at church right around the time when David first walked in on Dean. David's older sister thinks she saw Dean driving around in his van buying beer for kids all the time, and she probably did, that's what he did. And the families of both of the boys were super worried, obviously. And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the rest of this episode, just like the butcher. The police didn't really care. Houston had a ton of runaways at the time, just like in Hanover. 
The police were up to their incompetent eyeballs in runaway kid reports and missing persons on top of being understaffed, underfunded, and beating back a massive hippie rebellion. Woo! Fuck the man! After killing the boys, Dean decides to play it safe and move into a new apartment. Still gonna be going back to the Heights to hunt, though. That would be his favorite place to go look for new victims. Now that Dean knows that Brooks will pretty much do whatever he asks him to, it's time to step it up a notch. January 30th, 1971. The two picked up Donald Waldrop, 15, and his brother Jerry Waldrop, 13. They were going to the bowling alley to hang out. That sounds fun. I haven't been bowling in a while. They brought everyone back to the apartment, and David watched as Dean strangled them both to death. From then on, David helped Dean assault and murder. Didn't have a way out. Dean had bought him. That's... yeah. You know... I, this has not gotten any easier this week. I've been putting both of these together side by side, and I keep thinking that the more I read about them and the more I just push through and get through it, that it'll I'll come back later and it'll be easier to read through, but it's just fucking not. Oh, I was hoping it would be a little easier to process after I'd been deep in it for a little while, but it, it does not get any easier doing this. Especially this one. Two months later, they kill again in March 1971. 15-year-old Randall Harvey. He was biking to work at a gas station, and David knew him from school. So he's probably the one that helped him convince him to get in the van. We'll take you to work. Except, no, they don't go to work. He was taken back to the apartment, raped, and this time shot in the head, I think by David? And then they buried him behind a boat stall. The next two victims came from the candy factory. Greg Malley Winkle, who worked part-time sweeping up at the shop. And Dean also offered his mom a job, too. She dipped some of the pralines. When he was a teenager, Greg once stole a bike and went to jail, but it scared him so bad that when he got back, he had vowed to be a much better kid and not steal bikes nearly as often. So two months after the last two boys, in May 29, 1971, 16-year-old Greg Malley was going to go swimming at the pool with his friend David Hillegeist. David's mom had got home at about 11.30 that night, and the phone was already ringing. It was Greg. He said he was in Freeport, swimming. She heard him whispering with some other people in the background, and then he said, I'm with the kids. We'll be back to Houston soon. I know better than to be out so late. Freeport, just a short drive away from High Island Beach, just on the other side of Galveston. He'd been out late before, so mom didn't worry until he didn't come home. And she didn't want to go to the police because of his previous troubles and didn't want to get him in any more trouble. One of the neighbors, though, saw him getting into Dean's van. A white van. One that had been seen driven by him, presumably to get beer for other kids, many times before. Everybody sees this dude driving around. So David's family put pressure on the cops. Hillegeist's family. They again said, no, probably just a runaway and we're short staff. Throw your complaints in the pile. We'll get to it later. And then they flipped him off and spit on him as they walked out. They even got a Plymouth GTX license plate from a friend of Mally's. And police still did nothing, even if they had bothered to check this one out. You know what? Let's humor this crazy broad. Just shut her up. If they'd bothered to do that, it would have led straight to Dean. Could have been possibly stopped right here, but, you know, probably not. He would have made up some bullshit about some other crap and gotten away with it. And they were super fucking dumb cops back then, too. The boys were strangled and buried in the shed, but the family wouldn't know for years. A few days after they went missing, the third accomplice that we'll talk about today, Wayne Henley, posted signs to try and help find David Hillegeist. He was a friend of David's, and he was already acquainted with Dean. 
but he didn't quite know about the killings just yet. Elmer Wayne Henley had a similar background to the other boys. He was the oldest of four, very sensitive child, and came from a troubled home. Violent, alcoholic, abusive dad beat the shit out of everyone, hit him with a vacuum one time, and then called the cops. Why did you hit him with a vacuum? He must really suck. He had an IQ of about 126, but he's not a very bright student, not very good at school. He ended up dropping out to support the family and worked while getting his GED. Wayne and Brooks are both very intelligent, and that's a big part of what makes them so dangerous. Brooks later on will start to drift away a little bit, but Wayne dives in head first, and he is just as into the shit as Dean is. All three of them, though, will receive no sympathy from me. Lots of kids have fucked up childhoods with shitty abusive parents, and they don't horribly rape and murder 30-some-odd children. Wayne liked to burgle, too. He drank lots of beer, smoked lots and lots and lots of weed, and spent lots of time just hanging out outside the Jack in the Box or Long John Silver's. I guess there's not much else to do then. He was a bit of a player type, had lots of girlfriends. Told one of them, I'm gonna marry you someday. You know, that whole thing that kids say all the time to first crushes. I'll be with you forever, this is perfect, nothing could possibly go wrong, you're my first girlfriend. Yeah, how many times? Brooks and Henley knew each other from school. David was about a year older, so he introduced him to Dean in around 1971, thinking Dean would kill him. But Dean liked him though, and they ended up becoming friends. And Henley was glad that Dean liked him. Ended up being pretty close to the family too, Dean did. He ate dinner with them on holidays sometimes and even helped out with car repairs. I guess he was also handy? Dean treated Wayne like a son, and Wayne loved him like a father. Oh boy, more grooming, ew. Wayne's family was in sort of a tight spot financially, so Dean saw that as the perfect opportunity to coax Wayne into joining his little fucked up game. He helped him steal TVs, radios, electronics, whatever they could get their hands on, and then one day, out of nowhere, Dean asks Wayne, Would you be willing to kill if cornered? Wayne said yes. Dean told him the gay porn story, 200 per boy, more if they're cute, Ugh. Wayne says, nah, I'm not a kidnapper though. But there was something about the offer that Wood's appealing to him. Wait a minute, if I tell him no, he might not like me anymore. And he tried to ignore it for as long as he could, but about a year later, around Christmas time, the family's getting really desperate. So this is one of those situations where you end up faced with a bad choice and a worse choice. Either do this for Dean and make money for my family, or the family falls apart and we starve. Either way it sucks and I'm already doing bad shit anyway. So Wayne says, gotta make that money. So he takes Dean up on his offer. Early 1972, Rusty Branch, remember him? He goes to one of Dean's horrible apartment parties. After running into Rusty on the street one night when they were driving around, they offered him weed to get him to come back to Dean's place. They decided to play a little game. This is the handcuff trick. John Wayne Gacy actually got this from Dean, if I remember right. Wayne let either Dean or Rusty put a pair of handcuffs on him, and the goal was to just try and escape. Can you get out of these handcuffs? What Rusty didn't know was that Wayne had the key already in his back pocket, so he got out of the handcuffs fairly quickly. When it was Rusty's turn, the second the handcuffs were locked around his wrists, Dean jumped onto him and dragged him into the other room and strapped him to the board. Dean did his thing, raped and killed him, and in a weird way, Wayne was excited by all this. He felt exotic. Rusty's sister Sue was worried about him, but he'd run away before. After a few days, though, Sue knew something was up. 
Her and her family wouldn't know what happened to him, though, for 10 years. Skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want to hear the most disgusting thing I've ever fucking heard and really wish it wasn't floating around in my head now. Skip ahead. Rusty's genitals had been severed and buried next to him in a plastic bag and was labeled as a John Doe for 10 years before his sister could identify him. It also helped put an old memory into new context for her, though. She remembers sitting in Dean's van on the center console, and he had a cloth pulled up just behind the seat that covered up the whole back. There's like a curtain thing you could pull back on those vans. She said he never let her look back there, but there was always a smell coming from behind it. It's anyone's guess as to what that may have been, but I think we all probably know. By March 1972, all three were working together and Wayne was still collecting boys for Coral. His next victim was Frank Aguirre, another teenage boy who worked at Long John Silver's. He was a nice kid. Gave a crying little girl a bunch of hush puppies one time, even though she dropped her dime before getting there. I wonder how many hush puppies a dime would get you back then. Seemed like he was a good kid. He was devoted to his girlfriend, Rhonda Williams. Brought her family food all the time, and her dad thought he was super cool, which, yeah, free chicken, shit, yeah, that is cool. Rhonda Williams is going to play into this in a big way later. Remember her. Frank said he would marry her after high school, maybe, if all goes well. One night, he was planning to go over there after work. Calls her. Hey, I'm coming over after work. Oh, hey, Wayne. Oh, what's going on over at Dean's? Beer and weed? All right. Well, I gotta go see my girlfriend now. See ya. That might have been how it went down. You don't know. Once again, they got super stoned. They actually, this time, they had a contest to see who could get, to see who could get the most stoned. Have you ever been so stoned that you couldn't walk for a couple of minutes? That's what I'm gonna do right after I get done with this. I'm gonna need to, probably. And then Wayne pulls out a pair of handcuffs, and it's Frank's turn. Just like before with Rusty, as soon as he cuffed himself, Dean lunged at him and drug him off to the other room with the torture board. Frank had asked Dean, are you going to sell me to the porn ring, just like you did to Rusty? And Dean leaned in close and told him, I didn't sell him. I assaulted him, and then I killed him. And Frank looked at Wayne with hope, thinking maybe he would help him get him out of the situation. But I think this is when the violence starts to escalate a little bit for the both of them. They tied Frank up after he put the handcuffs on, then raped him, and then also mutilated his genitals, stuffed a cloth in his mouth, taped it shut, tied a noose around his throat, and strangled him. He fought it for a little bit, but eventually slipped into unconsciousness. And Wayne said after this that Dean had a savage and wild look in his eyes. And I'm not certain when this part of it started, but I think likely around this time, and I kind of want to just get it out of the way, because the mutilation I mentioned a second ago, skip, skip, skippity skip to your loo if you want to keep having a good day. Dean would use knives, his own teeth, gigantic sex toys, and sometimes, sometimes he would insert glass rods into the boy's urethra and break the tip off and then smash it with a hammer. Standing over Frank's body made them feel powerful. They took, this, they took his body down to High Island Beach and buried him too. In the next couple of days, the family begins to worry and reports him missing, but the police again can't be bothered to literally do their job, and they label him as a runaway and throw it in the pile. I don't like this pile. There's too many piles in these stories lately. I don't like this. 
His neighborhood didn't believe it. He left behind a paycheck. Plus, he was in love with Rhonda. She was super upset, too. She thought for sure something must be wrong. She told Wayne that she was beginning to get worried about him, but Wayne just told her to move on. The mafia had probably already gotten to him, and you'll never see him again. Oh yeah, and this is super disgusting. They kept the boys' keychains as trophies. Ugh. Next victim, 17-year-old Mark Scott. He knew David and Wayne from around the neighborhood as well. They knew everybody in here. They just... It was people that they saw that they knew from somewhere. All of these. It's so strange. He and Brooks had a sleepover when they were kids, and a pellet gun injury ended up sending Mark to the ER. And at some point, Mark got arrested for carrying a knife and said, Screw it, I'm going to Mexico to relax. What? That sounds the opposite of relaxing. That's a long damn drive, and I'm guessing he doesn't have a passport. How the hell did we get to Mexico to relax? And April 20th, 1972 was the last time he was seen. He probably seen by Wayne and David on the street, and then went back with them to Dean's. When they were there, handcuffed trick probably, Dean grabbed Mark and bound him to the torture board. But on his way in... On his way down, Mark grabbed a knife and tried to stab Dean, but it only winged him and caught him on the edge of the shirt. And then at that moment, Wayne comes in with Dean's gun pointing it at Mark, so Mark drops the knife mid-stab, unfortunately. And then Dean tortures and rapes him too. Strangled him with a cord and buried him in a fetal position close to where they married Frank down on High Island Beach. A few days after that, his parents, this is disturbing, there's a lot of these, they get a postcard from Austin saying that he'd found a good paying job making three bucks an hour and that all was well. Parents are super confused. Why would he leave behind his motorcycle and look for work in a different city? He liked his motorcycle. He wouldn't leave that thing behind. So they go to the police. Guess what they say? That's right, Silver Lexus. They called him a runaway again, and they didn't know what happened to their son for many, many years. Remember Betty Hawkins? They're still somehow together, even though they'd been seeing each other less and less. Every time she came over to his house, there was always just a ton of teenagers. And that one I get. Teenagers are annoying. Yeah, can I get a sweet tea and a water? No! You aren't going to drink both, and I don't want to have to refill two different drinks every five fucking minutes because you can't control your thirst. If you're a teenager and you're listening to this right now, fucking calm down, alright? It's not your money anyway, and you know it. Betty thought Dean's nature was a good influence on the boys. I shudder to think what was really going through his head when they were over there. This motherfucker really did stay busy with all the murdering, too. Billy Balch and Dan Johnny DeLome would be the next pair. Hit the button. They had been to Dean's parties many times. He told their parents that Dean shows us things. Told them that one time he even showed us a pair of handcuffs. They watched him play the handcuff trick with other boys is what I get from that, I think, which is, ew. How lucky would they been that time? Jesus, Ugh. Unfortunately, you don't run into the Candyman twice and get to come back for a third. On May 21st, Billy and Johnny left to go buy some sodas. They were supposed to go back later on that day and go see the movies with Billy's family, but they were instead picked up by Wayne and Dean. Then they were raped and tortured. Dean didn't strangle them this time, though. Wayne did. Wayne also took Dean's gun said, hey, Johnny, and when Johnny looked up, shot him in the head. It exited the skull by his ear, though. Instead of killing him, it only knocked him out. And then he sets up a few minutes later. I would have said, holy shit, and ran away. I just shot you in the face, and you're still alive? I'm out. Can't be done, then. Fucking Christ, dude. He begged with Wayne, please don't. So Wayne put the gun down. 
and then he smiled, and then they both strangled him and buried him down on High Island Beach again. Wayne had began exploring just a little bit deeper into the ways that he preferred to get the job done. His preferred method was with a gun. Oh yeah, remember Dean was supposed to be paying him for these? He was not, and Wayne didn't ask. He didn't really seem to mind that he was doing all this for free. He liked it. Three days after their disappearance, the other boys, the parents, also get a postcard. This time, postmarked from Madisonville, Texas, driven by there a lot. They said they'd gotten a good job at a trucking company and that they'd be back after the summer. Now, this set off a shitload of red flags everywhere. Billy's dad knew that there was no trucker job in Madisonville. Something's going on here. And it looked like Billy's handwriting on the front part, but the wording was weird and the whole thing was just super fishy. So his dad confronted Dean about it, and Dean said he had no idea. Lied his way out of that one too. Dean was only getting worse though, and he totally knew it. I still don't get this one. One day at Dean's apartment on Schuler, Dean invited David over. When he got there, Wayne jumps out and punches him in the face, and Dean straps David to the board. He raped David several times, and Brooks was certain he was about to die. But Dean let him go, and no one ever talked about it ever again. David still hung around, though, but his loyalty had become stilted, and he was always afraid of Dean after that one. Moving right along here, 19-year-old Billy Reitinger. David tried to take care of him and pleaded with Wayne and Dean to please let him go, and it worked. Dean let him go, and he never said anything about it. Oh my god, if only. Holy shit, man. The only boy to ever almost get murdered and raped by Dean Coral that got away. The only one. But now that there's a witness to this horrible, horrible shit, Dean moves into a new apartment in Westcott Towers. Surprise, if you live there and didn't know. Also, if you live in this city and you've never heard about this before, isn't this fucking crazy? I lived here for almost 20 years before I heard about this guy, and I'm still weirded out by all the familiar names and places that keep popping up everywhere. Just, bleh. David's allegiance was weakening, though. Conversely, Wayne's was growing ever stronger. He said, at first, I wondered what it was like and that it was fascinating when people have stamina. Wayne's saying this. Sometimes it would take two people just a, a half hour to strangle someone. Jesus Christ. A whole programming half hour. Imagine being strangled to death by two sadistic assholes while the whole next episode of How I Met Your Mother, with commercials included, plays in the background. It'd be like being strangled twice. By July 1972, they had murdered at least 14 boys in the past two years. David and Wayne still helped out with Dean, and whatever the plan was for that day, Wayne seemed to be enjoying it a lot more than Brooks was. Brooks was still kind of on the fence about if he really wanted to stay a part of this. Meanwhile, Wayne had been out searching for their next victim all day, and on July 19, 1972, they found him. Stephen Sickman and his sister Sandy had been fighting all day. She'd had a crush on one of his friends, and she'd just been following them around all day like a little puppy. He was probably being the older brother and being sort of a dick, but he apologized before going to a party that night and then headed out. While walking home shortly after midnight, they picked up Stephen. He was also beaten with something this time and then strangled with a nylon cord. Reported missing, called him a runaway again, can't do anything, throw it in the pile. And it seems like the cool-off period for these two is just about two months, October 2nd. 1972, Wally J. Simino and his friend Richard Hembray, or Hembray, I think Hembray from the spelling, were going to have a sleepover. And they were walking around the neighborhood whenever they were picked up. But on their way back to Dean's, on their way back to Dean's, they stopped by the store and the van was spotted by a friend. This friend started to walk over to the van, but Wayne stepped out and said, 
get the fuck out of here. Beat it. What a, or something to that effect, I don't know. At the apartment, Wally somehow got to the phone and called his mom. When she answered, he said, Mama! And Mama immediately said, Where are you? And then there was some commotion on the other end of the phone, and the line went dead. The next time she'd see him was when the police dug up the body. Wayne had kind of been hoping that Dean would just kill him, too. He didn't seem to see another way out, so if it ended with him being strapped to the board, he probably would have enjoyed it. Next victim was Richard Kepner, 19. Strangled, buried at High Island. And by the end of January 1973, Dean was a notoriously shitty tenant. Neighbors heard weird noises one night coming from between the hours of 2 and 4 a.m. Said it sounded like someone beating their heads against the wall and screaming. No one ever called. Said probably just somebody having a bad drug trip and they'll come down in a couple hours. The maid for the apartment refused to clean the unit though. Not until that foul smell had been aired out of there. It smelled horrible in his apartment, probably because of corpse smell or whatever other shit. Who knows what else is in there. Only one victim is known to have been killed here, though. Joseph Lyles. He lived on the same street as David when they were a kid, and they'd been to many of the apartment parties. Their next-door neighbor for these kids is literally just snatching kids off the street. Jeez. Joseph, like many of the other boys, just liked to keep to himself, mostly. He was painting a Christmas thing on a window but it ended up never being finished, unfortunately. It was two weeks into moving into the new apartment, and for some reason, David Brooks felt like something was a little bit off about the night. Something about the vibe that night creeped him out. David had a really eerie feeling. Something told, that, something told him just to get out of there. He tried to pick a fight with Joseph, so he'd leave, but Joseph ended up staying, and then David said, Nope, I'm out. I got somewhere else to be. And it's the same as before with Joseph strangled, raped, but this time he was buried on Jefferson County Beach, which is just a little bit northwest of High Island Beach, and he was the only victim buried there. It was also the first murder on his own, Dean's first murder on his own since Jeffrey Conan, Joseph Conan, Jeffrey Conan? It was his first murder on his own since then, Jeffrey Conan. David tried to just avoid Dean from then on, spent more time with his girlfriend, Bridget Clark, even moved away for a little while to live with his dad over in Mount Pleasant, but that didn't end up working out. He also tried to enlist in the Navy, but because he didn't finish high school, he was not allowed to enlist. He was too dumb, at least on paper. And then for some reason, it doesn't say why, but Dean ends up getting super swollen balls for some reason and ended up having to take a break from February 1st to June 4th during 1973. There's no known victims during that time because he had swollen testicles, which makes me giggle. Some people did see them during this time, though. Three suspicious guys in Galveston were seen lugging a large bundle of something that they then buried. When they approached them very carefully, they said they saw that it was Wayne, but no bodies were ever found in Galveston. May of 1973, two witnesses saw three men burying something by the beach. They told the cops. Guess what the cops didn't do? Anything. David was the one seen there that time, but it could have just been a misidentification, though. Those witnesses didn't come forward until after this was all out, so who knows what they saw. They could have just remembered it wrong and just made it make sense in their own brains. March 7th, 1973. Dean moved into the final residence. This is a house in Pasadena over at 2020 Lamar Drive. His dad was living in Houston and ended up having an okay relationship with him now. And Dean's neighbors liked him because he wasn't a dirty, worthless fucking hippie. Wayne moved back to the area after living with Dad sucked again. 
not surprising. He'd say, if I wasn't around, Dean would just go after one of my little brothers. And almost immediately after returning, they started up again with the murders. Wayne and David noticed that Dean was also way more vicious now. He had these weird jerky motions. He was smoking cigarettes all the time, which he never used to do. And he would just mutter to himself that he needed to do a new boy, which is disgusting. And I don't want to say it again. He would have done a new one every single day if he could get it, just like Fritz. Literally every single day. These two are so similar. June 4th, 1973. Picks up Billy Ray Lawrence. This Billy lived with his dad, Jimmy Lawrence. He just wanted to chill and smoke weed like a lot of kids did and like I want to do. But of course, dad's kind of a dick about it. Jimmy worked as a mail clerk, so he didn't have a lot of patience for unruly bullshit back at home. Billy made friends with Wayne, and one time, Dad caught him smoking weed and literally dragged him by his long, luxurious hippie hair to the bathroom and made him flush his stash. I betcha. I betcha they had the window unit turned around in the, in the window, just so they could blow all the weed smoke outside instead of inside, and maybe a butter knife on the stove next to one of the burners. After the ass-whooping, the relationship started to improve with Dad for some reason. He gave Billy a ride to the store once and asked him what he wanted for your birthday, son. Said nothing, Dad, but thanks for thinking about it. All right, love you, son. Have a good day, buddy. It was a quiet day otherwise for Jimmy. And Billy called late that night and begged his dad to let him please go fishing at Lake Sam Rayburn. I'll be back by Thursday. Dad wanted to ask who he was going with, but thought, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't pry too much. All right, you know what? Yeah, I'm cool with that. Go ahead, son. And they made it to the lake where Dean had a cottage, and it ended up being a three-day torture fest because Dean really liked him. He also forced him to write a note before killing him. Jimmy didn't really seem to mind when Thursday came and went and Billy hadn't returned yet. He just assumed he was off doing his own thing and he'd be back when he was done. But then he also got a suspicious postcard written forcibly and under duress by Billy before they murdered him. And somebody called Jimmy about a month later looking for Billy. This is before he knew. Jimmy told him that he was out of town until school started. Wait, who is this? The voice on the other end of the phone just said, Wayne. There would be four more boys over the next month. Raymond Blackburn, Homer Garcia, Michael Balch, and John Sellers. Balch was also the older brother of the other Billy, Billy Balch, and his other older brother was also killed in a car accident recently. This poor family, man, Jesus. Brooks was still pulling away. Bridget was now pregnant, and they decided they wanted to have a honeymoon at Lake Sam Rayburn, but they're often seen hanging outside the apartment in the Heights. Next two boys were just Wayne's doing, I think, 17-year-old Charles Cobble and 18-year-old Marty Ray Jones. They picked them up on July 25th, 1973, and these three were spotted walking towards Wayne's house. Two boys were in front, Wayne was in the back walking behind them, and they all had a serious look on their face. Wayne shot Charles in the head and strangled Marty, and then buried them himself. 1973, July rolls around. During this time, Brooks is just chilling with his wife a little bit more. Wayne, obviously, super willing accomplice. He just did two himself, and we're almost done, you guys. Hang in there. He'd been irritable and drinking more frequently, though, and sometimes even sought counseling, Wayne did. Dean had been calling Betty more often, though, which is odd. He took her kids to the cabin a lot and he even talked about marriage. All right, another one, here we go. James Dremala in Pasadena. He was a thin kid with blonde, bushy hair. He was riding his bike down the street one day when Dean offered him a ride. 
On the way back though, they decided we're gonna stop and grab some cans for recycling and get some beer money, but nope, torture board. David did keep him company for about an hour before he left. He had to get out of there before he was eventually killed. And this is strange. Dean calls his mom the next day after killing J Dre Mala. She's still in Colorado. He says, Mom, I'm in trouble, I'm going crazy, and I might OD on purpose. This is the only time that he'd ever show vulnerability. His mom said that she would send him some books and candy in the mail as comfort, so maybe he did feel a little bit of remorse for a split second. Very few do, but they also experience their violent side as separate from themselves, kind of like Dahmer's, so maybe for a brief second it came back out but it didn't last very long if it did seems very strange so now Wayne and Dean want to have another party it's August 7th 1973 and Wayne invites a kid named Tim Curley Wayne had also become sort of a big brother to Rhonda Williams from earlier after they murdered her brother Frank she was there too that night and Dean was pissed after Wayne showed up with a teenage girl. Get the fuck out of here, Wayne! She's gonna curse this whole house with her voodoo devil snatch full of spells! Wayne says, well, she can't go home. Her dad's gonna beat the shit out of her with a demon rod if she does. Then Dean calms down a little bit and says, alright, fuck it, whatever. Let's just have a few beers, smoke some weed, and huff some paint. If you need me, I'll be under the table. That wall sounds like purple. One by one, everyone slowly starts to pass out. When Wayne came to, he had a gag on his mouth, and Dean was handcuffing him. Tim and Rhonda were still bound up and gagged next to him. They're still passed out. Wayne is confused. Wayne is scared. Wayne then realizes what's going on. Dean says, I'm going to kill you for bringing a girl into my house. Wayne begs him, please, no, don't. I don't want to die. I'll do anything. I'll even kill my own friends. Dean is intrigued. Okay, my friend, get up. Now drag them to the torture board. So they wake up. Dean tells Wayne to use a hunting knife to cut off her clothes and rape and kill her and I'll do Tim. Rhonda stayed calm during this because she was in shock. Tim was the complete opposite. He was frantic and screaming. Just fucking losing his shit. It's like Fritz and Hans Grunz. Fritz stayed calm. Hans Grunz was losing his mind. Hans Grunz is always going to be fun for me to say. Wayne thought about shooting her in the head and just ending it all and showing a little bit of mercy until she turned her head slowly and asked, Is this for real? Wayne said yes. Rhonda replied, Well, are you going to do anything about it? No idea why, but in that moment, that exact moment, something flipped on inside of Wayne. Maybe it was that switch. He grabbed Dean's gun, Dean saw it and dared him to try to kill him, and he must not have thought Wayne had it in him to be daring him like that because Wayne fired. He aimed for the spot right between his eyes, but it ended up just grazing him in the forehead. Shot him again, twice, once in the shoulder, once in the chest. Dean stumbles backwards and staggers out of the room, and Wayne shot him three more times in the back. Dean Coral, the Houston mass murderer, the Candyman, was dead. Fucking dead. Holy shit. Dead. Here's a quote from Wayne that's really disturbing. Dean trained me to react fast and greatly. Nothing could have made me more uptight than being drunk, stoned, and hungover and having withdrawals. And then it just blew his life away. 
He would have been proud of the way I did it if he wasn't proud before he died. However, it wasn't until Wayne started listing off boys reported as missing that the cops realized, oh shit, we've got a lot more to do. We did not know what we were getting into when we answered that phone call. Also inside the house was a shitload of torture devices and a coffin-sized wooden box full of air holes and a lot of human hair. It was thought that he used it to transport bodies between the house and different burial sites. Both of the boys, Brooks and Wayne Henley, were brought in for questioning and both confessed separately. They each said that they would lead police to bodies behind the boat shed, High Island Beach, Lake Sam Rayburn, and everywhere else, and they ended up getting 27 recovered bodies in the early days of the investigation. They couldn't remember all of them. Jimmy, Billy Lawrence's father, was still in denial. He was confused about all the sympathetic phone calls he'd suddenly been receiving. It took until someone matched the dental records that his son's body was identified. The search suspended a week later, even though there might be more. Probably because the higher-ups wouldn't let them continue. This broke the record for mass murder in the United States, which was previously 25, made international news, and embarrassed the shit out of the Houston Police Department. The Pope spoke up about it. I wish I had that quote. I could not find it. The cops didn't want to continue because the body count was already high enough and they wanted to save some embarrassment, which is bullshit. Joseph Lyle's body was found just by chance in 1983. Mark Scott was never found. Wayne said that it was on High Island Beach, but Hurricane Ike submerged it, so we might never know where he is. There was also an unnamed body found in a boat shed during the investigation. It was buried next to a swimsuit, some boots, a leather bracelet, a t-shirt. They're thinking maybe happened in late summer 1971. Wayne Henley and David Brooks were both tried for their roles in these murders. Wayne was found guilty of six counts of homicide. David's confession made him seem a lot more passive, said he wasn't present for any rapes or murders, and he was only found guilty of one of the four he was charged with. They were both found guilty in about 90 minutes. Billy Reidinger was there at the trial too, the one boy that he let go, but... He had to wear a paper bag over his head with eyes holes cut out in it and never spoke publicly about it with anybody, probably because he felt guilty about what happened after. Wayne says there might be more bodies, but without a formal search, we may never know. Elmer Wayne Henley is currently serving out his life sentence in the Mark Stiles unit in Beaumont, where he will probably, and hopefully very soon, die a horribly painful and drawn-out death, preferably at the hands of a spunky gay teenager. That would be awesome. I want a prepubescent, confused teenager to stab the shit out of him. That would be such a fitting end. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens, though. But there's no need to worry about David Owen Brooks, however. He died back in 2020 of COVID. Fucking ha-ha, you ass-breath loser. Not sad about that one being gone. Well, happy Halloween, everybody! That's the Candyman! Holy shit! What the fuck were those two stories from this week? My god, I am never going to get that image out of my head. I'm, that decomposing thing that was buried next to that other thing that's staying in my head right now. I wanted to spare you if you skipped ahead. <laughs> it's just up there now, collecting cobwebs. So thank you so much to everyone who tuned in tonight and yesterday, if you've already listened. If you haven't, go back. It's just as crazy as this one is. Just as gross, too. Never realized how similar these two cases were before I started putting them together side by side either. It's, there's so many parallels. The, the police presence, the confusing sexuality, the troubled home life, the being shipped around from place to place and living with family members and 
the victim profile is the same, and it's so strange how similar these two cases are. I didn't realize that. That was fun for me. I cannot put into words how much it really means to me, truly, that I have anybody that wants to listen to me. You people are the greatest people in the fucking world, and I love you all for it. Hail Germany, Norway, and Sweden. I'm not going to say hail Germany like that, but you know that I love you guys over there whenever you listen to me. I hope that you like this one, too. How did you hear about my show, first of all? That's what I want to know. I'm, I don't have anybody that listens. I don't know anyone over there. How'd you hear about it? If you want to show your love for me and what I do some more, or what I'm trying to do, which is be entertaining, you can rate and review the show for me. If I made you laugh today, that's at least worth a five-star rating or a quick review. You don't even have to be honest. Just say, like, uh, fart cloud, or something stupid like that. Hey, let's do this. Once I get enough people leaving reviews, I'll look through all the funniest ones, and I'll have Alex try to marathon read through them all, as many as he can, in one breath. And he was awfully quiet today, but given what his character is, sometimes he's just like that. I'm sure he'll be back with some extra wild and stupid shit to say about whatever I'm going to talk about next week. I have November scheduled out, but I don't remember what I picked just yet, and I haven't gotten around to scripting anything, because I've been buried in these two, and also, this week's been crazy. And these, it's just been a huge pain in the ass to get through this week. But that's all you're going to get from me tonight. So I'll see you all next Sunday, folks. Stay, Stay kind. kind.